So hi, welcome to the first ever episode of the Panthers on Politics podcast. I'm Ruby Scuff, and I'm really excited for today's episode centered on Black History Month. We have some wonderful guests joining us, and we'll be diving into conversation with them in a moment. But first, we just wanted to give a brief introduction to the general goals of this podcast and what you can expect. So as college students, we know it's very important to vote and advocate for the policies and laws and candidates that we believe in. Youth tend to be underrepresented in the political process, so it's super valuable to have our voices heard. However, we know that staying updated and informed on elections, candidates and their positions, and major political events can be really challenging, especially as busy students running around between classes, work, clubs, and the rest of life. So a few of us were talking the other day and we were like, wow, wouldn't it be so nice if there was just a 15, 20 minute podcast episode that had all of the relevant details and resources about politics, specifically tailored to being a student here and living in Pittsburgh. So we decided to create one. And that's ultimately what we hope to achieve here, giving you the main political news, information and resources in a concise format with interesting guests so you're well-equipped to stay civically engaged. So we can get straight into introductions. Again, I'm Ruby Scuff, and I'm currently a second year student at Pitt, double majoring in politics and philosophy and psychology. So if we wanna start with Ben, and then we can move on to JC and then Jacob. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, I am a senior at Pitt. I am a film and communications major. I was invited on this podcast because I'm a writer for the Pitt News, and I recently wrote an article about the Pitt, new Pitt majorette team. And so that's why I'm here. Awesome. Hi, y'all. Um, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. My name is JC Brown. My pronouns are she, they. Um, I'm a native Mississippian who's been calling Pittsburgh home for about two years now. I actually got my master of social work from Pitt this past August. Um, I started my organizing work in 2020 back in Mississippi, and I've been working in voter engagement and voting rights since then. Um, I'm currently the organizer at large um, for Pennsylvania and Ohio at Civic Influencers. We are a national nonpartisan voter engagement organization, a mouthful. Um, We work with young people like Ruby across the country who are doing voter engagement work and advocacy on their campuses and in their local communities. I'm happy to be here and share more about my Black Joy as a former resistance project and just talk a bit more about what we've been up to at Civic Influencers. Uh, and I'm uh, Jacob Scupp, uh, capping off all of our introductions. I'm with the Black Institute, which is a New York-based uh, racial justice action tank, a think tank that takes action. Uh, I am the director of research for the Black Institute, as well as the deputy director of political organization for our sister organization, uh, the Black Leadership Action Coalition. Um, I don't have a specific focus, but uh, if, it's, if it has to do with racial justice and about examining uh, often overlooked aspects of policies, legislations, and general events uh, and their effects on communities of color, which is a sadly understudied element of uh, a lot of academia, uh, it's my job to bring those to light and suggest ways to fix them. Awesome. So. 
First, we just wanted to briefly dive into the background of Black History Month and why it's so important. So Jacob, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Um, so as most of you probably know, Black History Month is an annual uh, time of the year. It's every February and it's a time where we're supposed to, where we recognize uh, the impact that African-Americans, our black and brown communities have had on America and you know, by extension, the, the greater world the, throughout the diaspora. Uh, originally, you know, it wasn't a month. It was actually just a week um, started by Carter Woodson uh, and the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, uh, which began shortly after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. Uh, it was actually called National Negro History Week uh, in 1926. Uh, obviously, the terminology has changed, and I think for the better. Uh, over time, you know, this has expanded. It's not, uh, you know, it's you know, it started off pretty small, but uh, more and more schools, more and more communities, cities, and eventually the nation um, started recognizing this. And uh, during the civil rights movement, in particular, this idea of seeing how communities, of, seeing the impact that people and communities of color have had uh, on our society. Uh, came to the forefront, you know, and there was, you know, and, and the reality is, is that due to the impact, you know, a week is just not enough, you know, there's so much more. And, and honestly, I would say even a month is not enough, but <laughs> um, so in 1976, uh, Gerald Ford actually did end up making it uh, the uh, Black History Month. Uh, today, of course, the, the tradition continues, you know, we're uh, attempting to, uh, you know, continue to recognize the impact that people of color uh, have had on America, uh, the impact and role of black black activism uh, in politics, in economics, uh, in society at large, um, and of course at the Black Institute. It's our particularly held belief that uh, you know Black History Month is not a backwards-looking time. It should not be a backwards looking time where we just recognize the same individuals over and over again. It's about recognizing uh, black historians, uh, you know, like black history makers in the present and by extension the future. So Black History Month clearly encompasses a lot, but focusing specifically on the more political sphere, um, Jacob, can you tell us briefly about black suffrage in America? Certainly. So, uh, as most probably know, uh, the history of people of color in America has not always been a very good one. Um, you know, originally, people of color were brought here as, as slaves, and following the Civil War uh, and the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868, uh, the Constitution granted African Americans the right to citizenship. Um, however, uh, that unfortunately did not apply in all cases there was a lot of abuse at the polls african-american voters were turned away uh two years later in 1870 the 15th amendment was passed which was supposed to help solve the problem of uh of denying voters uh and legal citizens the right to vote um based on their race gender or any other uh demographic demographic uh elements or uh, in particular previous condition of servitude um, so if they were pri previously a slave 
that was that could not be a basis, which was frequently used as a uh, as a way to deny the right to vote. Um, unfortunately, you know these things are very vaguely worded. Uh, to this day, it's still a problem, and that allowed for things like poll taxes, uh, just garden variety intimidation, unfortunately, um, and a whole bunch of other ways to restrict the suffrage of black and brown voters, uh, especially in the South. This is where, uh, in fact, voter voter suppression laws were an integral part of the Jim Crow laws, uh, which are better known as the laws that, you know, that uh, promulgated the idea of separate but equal. Um, these barriers have, you know, since the passage of the 15th Amendment, uh, those laws formed the basis of voter suppression efforts against people of color until um, the civil rights movement, where this was really brought to the forefront as a as an issue of equality and or and lack thereof more so. Um, and in the, you know, as a, in resu as a result of the uh, movement in nine, in the 1960s, the 24th Amendment, uh, as well as the Voting Rights Act were passed, which prohibited poll, uh, poll taxes, literacy tests, and other methods that uh, were used to deny black and brown voters the right to vote. So what does black voting look like today? Are there still challenges that exist? So uh, as of 2022, uh, Black Americans account for just over 13% of eligible voters in the United States. Uh, however, this is something that, uh, and this is actually quite problematic because uh, America is on its way to become a majority minority country. You know, Black and Brown people make up a significant amount of Americans today as compared to even during the civil rights movement where whites were still a majority in the nation. Um, and that figure in particular, that 13%, um, it's not as high as it should be because of voters, of continued voter suppression and other uh, barriers that deny people of color the suffrage, their the the right to vote. Uh, in particular, uh, recent development, the last several decades, has been uh, voter ID laws. Uh, if you don't have an ID, you can't vote. Um, and this is because this is unfortunately because uh, people of color do not necessarily have IDs at as high rates of, as uh, white people. And again, these are primarily, uh, sadly, uh, in areas where slavery was uh, was a, it was more common. Um, additionally, due to uh, due to gerrymandering and the decisions to set poll sites for given counties and voting precincts, um, research has shown that uh, voters of color have to wait longer at polls. Um, which, of course, if if you've ever been to vote, you know that standing in line to vote can often feel like a chore and make you not want to do it. And that's how a lot of people think. And it's sad because that does prevent people from participating in our democracy, uh, which is why vote by mail and expanded voting hours have had such a positive impact on expanding uh, the voter pool. But unfortunately, uh, ballots from voters of color are still rejected at higher rates than uh, white ballots. Um, 
and in general scaling back of polling places has also been found to uh, significantly impact uh, the rate at which people of color vote. Um, you asked the Brookie institutions, this is a quote that I'm quite fond of, uh, if people have to wait in line for hours to vote, they take two buses and walk miles to get to a polling place, turn to a central voting location because they didn't have the proper identification and potentially get fired for taking a five, five to 10 minutes to vote once at the booth, they're going to normally opt for their time, for their job and time. Um, you know, the fact that voting, that, uh, that election day is not a holiday is utterly, it's tragic. It's, uh, it's, it's an affront to what our democratic principles stand for, you know? Thanks for that, Jacob. Um, so it's clear that these issues are really critical to focus on and Black History Month is a great time to shed some light on them. I know Pitt has had some great Black History Month events. Um, for example, the Changemakers and Conversation series featured John Carlos, who is a former US track and field athlete that brought attention to racism in America when he protested at the 1968 Olympics. So that was really cool. There's also the K. Leroy Irvis Black History Month celebration where six Pittsburghers are honored for being champions of equality, inclusion, and anti-racism. At this celebration, um, or this celebration was named after a prominent Pittsburgh attorney who fought for civil rights and fair housing and was actually PA's first black speaker of the house during periods in the 1970s and 80s. I also just attended a talk by Damon Young, who's the author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. And this was a memoir and essays about growing up as a black man in Pittsburgh. So I thought it was super inspiring and really interesting. Um, Pitt has also a ton of, uh, of thriving black student groups like Black Action Society. And Ben, I know you recently wrote an article, like you mentioned, about another student group, the Majorette Team. So can you tell us a little bit more about them? Sure, absolutely. And uh, before I do, I actually wanted to say that I actually uh, made one mistake in the article, which was I called the team the Royal Girls when actually this uh, team is called the Pit Pantherettes. So I want to clear that up because uh, that was put into print and put online. And um, Chelsea Adenuba, the founder of the club, she told me and I was like, oh, no, that already went out to print. But um, just thought I'd clear that up right now. But anyways. So yeah, I wrote about um, the Pitt Pantherettes, the new majorette team at the University of Pittsburgh. They perform at the women's basketball games, and they're basically a group of, um, of black, black women students who form this team. Um, I don't know if anyone is aware of what majorettes are, but basically it's a tradition at historically black colleges and universities. And it's not something I was really familiar with before I um, chose to pick up the article. But um, yeah, I started reading up about it and I, was, I found it sorry, very interesting. And um, I got a chance to interview um, the people on the team and they were very friendly and willing to talk about it, willing to, willing to weigh in on the conversation about majorettes as an art form and as a tradition from historically black colleges and universities. And uh, they were talking about um, just this past um, this past fall, I believe, in a similar article 
um, a team popped up at uh, University of Southern California, I believe. And it sparks kind of a wider conversation about the adoption of, of traditions from historically black colleges and universities at PWIs, predominantly white institutions. And um, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting, uh, interesting conversation uh, and very enlightening from just my conversation with them as to what they thought about it. So great. Thank you so much for sharing about them, Ben. Um, I want to turn now to JC and Ashley mentioned she works for Civic Influencers, which I'm also part of. And that's the national nonpartisan organization whose mission is to increase civic power. So I just wanted to ask you, JC, how did you get interested in this work? Why are you passionate about it? Yeah, thanks, Ruby. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, I started this work um, really in 2020. Um, the pandemic was raging, protests against um, police brutality were happening all over the country. And there was just so much pain, grief, and loss um, at that point. And I just felt called to be doing something more. And I started out kind of like you as a student worker on my undergrad campus in Mississippi. And I was leading a team of other students who were doing similar work of voter engagement, voter education, um, and advocacy pieces, particularly around our 2020 um, ballot initiatives in Mississippi to change our flag from the Confederate flag to overturn a Jim Crow era election law and to introduce medical marijuana in the state. So we were like doing some very important work. Um, and I just kind of fell in love with the work, honestly. Um, and I'm passionate about this work because it's very close to me. I'm not fighting really for an idea, but for my livelihood, for my little sisters and my little brother, and for all the activists who laid the groundwork before me. And I also do this work to antagonize the idea that Black people and young people particularly don't care about what's going on in the world, that they're apathetic and they don't vote. Black people do vote. Young people do vote. And it's kind of what Jacob touched on. It's all about access and inclusive, inclusivity. Um, the barriers we see, it didn't happen overnight. Um, the gerrymandering, the, the closing down polling locations in more rural communities, the lack of transportation and access to the polls, the lack of um, disability access at the polls. Like, these are very intentional um, things that are um, interfering with people's um, opportunity to access the ballot. Um, and that's why I do this work to antagonize the rhetoric that people don't care, but it's people do care, but our, our system isn't set up for it to allow people to interact in the same way as certain um, populations. True. Um, I know you've been also been recently working on a project about Black joy, and you asked the really important question, is there room for Black joy? Um, so I wanted to ask you, what is Black joy and what does it mean to you? Yeah, um, the question of is there room for Black joy is a really great question and it's also kind of really sad. Um, I think many people ask, like, if I'm celebrating joy, Am I ignoring all the atrocities in the world or am I appearing naive? And the answer is no. More than one truth can exist simultaneously. And joy is embedded in Black culture. We find joy through music, poetry, dancing, like majorettes, um, cooking, and so much more. Um, these are like the very things that have allowed us to quite honestly survive in the white supremacist world. So to me, Black joy is about humanity and it's about just existing, being able to exist, you know? Um, so this idea really drove my Black joy and democracy project. And 
while I was working on it, I thought about Tyree Nichols, who is known to many as a bright creator and an artist. Um, so I created this webpage and it contains a lot of resources, media, and action steps for people to take during the month of February and beyond because this work spans more than 28 days and Black history is American history. Um, so we've also been highlighting some of our amazing Black organizers on social media, ask, asking them the same question, what does Black joy mean to you and how does it show up in your activism and in your life? Um, I actually want to share one of those quotes with you all. Um, this quote is by Shania Daughtry, um, a civic influencer at the University of Alabama. To Shania, Black joy is the epitome of resistance. It is an essential element of Blackness because the tool of, of, the tool of oppression historically has been an abyss of hopelessness. But because joy and hope are so closely related, if a Black person has joy, then one can have hope. And I really love that quote, and I really highlight the part of the tool of oppression historically has been an abyss of hopelessness. And that, that there describes how joy is an act of resistance for me. And that's the idea that was the foundation of this project. That's really awesome. So I know you mentioned that um, you have this website with resources and stuff. And I was wondering if there are any specific resources or um, any good ways to support Black creators and activists? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely recommend listeners to visit um, Civic Influencers webpage. It's literally civicinfluencers.org. Um, you'll see a tab at the top um, that is labeled Black History Month. But this page will stay up and it, because, like I said, this work goes beyond 28 days. Um, it's a living page, so if there's any additional content you'd like to see, please reach out to us. Um, but a little bit about the resources that are on the page. I have videos from Black icons like John Lewis, um, disability activists that are speaking on joy and democracy. I have um, links to young Black activists that you can follow. I have I created a Black History Month Spotify playlist. Um, I ask my peers um, and, and family members what Black music brings you joy. So, of course, you have some Beyonce. You have some... Um, Aretha Franklin and so on. And I've been listening to that playlist all month and just having dance parties. But other resources, it starts in your local community. Like if you have local black businesses and artists in your community, support them, reach out to them. And I feel like we're so connected now in our world with social media, it's easier to find those things. Use the hashtags, hashtag black business owners, hashtag small black businesses. We have ways to connect um, with people who are doing amazing work and people who are are trying to practice joy and and survive in this world. Um, what do you ultimately see as like the best ways to get people motivated to hear and be inspired by this message to spread and uplift Black joy? Like, are there any specific platforms or action steps that you would recommend? Yeah, I think. It's that you have to actively look for it these days because we're so bombarded by like breaking news every day. Um, it can kind of feel like all is lost and like the world is in pieces. Like I feel that way very often. But then I'm reminded of like the pockets of joy and laughter with my family and friends when I'm listening to artists like Lizzo. Um, and when I'm seeing black people continue to break the glass ceiling despite the structural oppression existing to knock us down. And I just think to recognize that joy and wholeness is just to recognize the humanity in all of us. Um, so I do have a few action steps that, that you all can take. And the first one is to read. 
Um, we can't understand what we don't know. And there are attacks across the nation against black knowledge. Um, for example, the Florida governor is leading efforts to purge AP African-American curriculums and states coast to coast have introduced anti-critical race theory and anti-gender studies legislation aiming to eliminate the knowledge of black joy, feminism, queerness, and radicalism. Because black joy is knowledge. Um, so find those lists of banned books, read them, share them with your peers. Um, the second is, of course, to follow civic influences on social media. We're doing great work, not only in Pennsylvania, but in key states across the country. And we are constantly creating new ways for young people to be engaged in our data-informed work and always sharing resources um, that are similar to these to this topic that we're discussing today. Um, and the last one I kind of mentioned already is to support Black creators um, and activists. It is um, so easy to be connected. You, like I say, you can use hashtags. You can find um, local community groups in your um, neighborhoods. Just reach out and find those people um, who are close to you because you don't have to find something that's national. Everyone's, you know, want to do climate change or find someone who's um, doing um, federal legislation work, but it really starts in our local communities. Like we have people all around us who are trying to um, shake the table and create change and support those people who are close to you. Great. Well, thank you so much, JC, Jacob, and Ben for joining us today. I definitely took a lot away from this and I hope that our listeners did too. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.